break, breaking from our series in Acts this morning. This week, many in our culture and world are particularly thinking about remembering the incarnation of the Son of God, the birth of Jesus in various ways, and so it's good and right we would look to the scriptures, look to God's word uh, concerning that event and understand rightly uh, its significance uh, for us, God taking on humanity. So if you'd turn with me this morning to Matthew and to Luke, read some from uh, the beginning of both of those gospels, mainly we'll be looking at at Luke chapter 2, but first from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Hear God's holy word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which which translated means God with us. And then if you turn over to Luke chapter 2... Read more uh, of the account here, beginning in verse 1, Luke 2, verse 1. Again, hear God's holy word. Now in those days a decree went out from, the Caesar, from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as had been told them. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, 
His name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then uh, just down to verse 39 and 40. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I will end our reading there this morning. Sometimes the stories of a culture, as they are retold and reprinted and redrawn through the arts or through children's books and that kind of thing, uh, morph over time. Uh, Sometimes stories with uh, rougher edges or more difficult topics uh, are are softened and sentimentalized and tamed a bit. Uh, For example, the original uh, Snow White, when Snow White was originally told in 1812, Uh, The antagonist, the evil queen in that story, uh, was not Snow White's stepmother. She was her actual mother. Okay, so it it makes it a little, you know how the story changed. It's a little easier to swallow, a little easier to tell your kids. Maybe the version that that we know with, um, uh, the the same is actually true of the story of Hansel and Gretel. The, The lady that tried to leave the kids in the forest to die was not their stepmother, that was their real mother in the original telling. Okay, once again, a little harder to tell your kids, a little, little more awkward. Um, another famous story written in the 19th century was originally called The Story of the Three Bears. And it was not, as, as we know it, about a little blonde girl. and um, it, it, was, it was about an impudent old woman who stumbles on the home of uh, three bachelor bears. And she, of course, tries their beds and tries their porridge, and, and you, you know the rest, basically. Um, Again, you know how that story is morphed and softened and made about a cute little girl and a cute bear family and so on. Uh, Or take the story of Johnny Appleseed. Johnny Appleseed is the subject of many children's books uh, in our culture uh, about a guy who traveled across uh, America as a missionary and and planting apple trees so boys and girls could enjoy them everywhere. That's the, the sentimentalized cute version that morphed from uh, the original guy was named John Chapman. He did uh, plant an unbelievable number of, of apple trees across the country. Uh, but he did so with literally two motives. One was he simply went ahead of settlers and planted orchards uh, so that a couple years later when, when settlers would get to where he was moving west, uh, he would sell them the land. He was making profit. And it would having an established orchard would help them to homestead the land by by the current laws. Uh, and then the other thing, th- th- these apples were all sour and inedible. Um, he was simply planting them to make hard cider, to make cider. It was easier than beer and wine in a lot of places. Okay? So, but that doesn't make this for the sort of uh, Johnny Appleseed books that we have today. <clears throat> the story we're looking at this morning, of course, is the birth of Jesus. Certainly one of the most familiar and retold uh, stories in the Bible. Not a fable, not a story that's been rewritten here in our Bibles. We have it as it was originally told. Uh, But as often is true with such familiar accounts, we get particular traditions and and images and so on uh, built around them, particularly through the arts, uh, that include speculations and extra-biblical and even contra-biblical details or, or depictions of the event. And the effect of that is... We end up with layers of tradition and sentimentality, perhaps, that create something of a, a barrier between us 
and, and what's actually in the scriptures, the, the story that was actually told by the Holy Spirit. Some of these images or speculations might be true or they might not be. Uh, either way, they, they can get in the way of us seeing and hearing what the Bible actually says about certain events, what the Holy Spirit was pleased to record in, in his infinite wisdom for our salvation, for our edification. Um, just as a, 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 I've given some uh, historical examples of that, here's, here's another biblical example of that before we look at the story before us. Some of you may have at home a little uh, bored baby book of the story of Noah, right? What's, what's the story that's told in a little children's book of Noah, right? It's, it's Noah and his cute, fluffy animal friends get to go on a boat ride, and they see a, they see a rainbow at the end, right? Now, that's not exactly the plot that's in the scriptures, all right? There's nothing of the gruesome detail and the fearful warnings that are, that are part of Genesis 6 and following, though there's, there's redemption there as well, for sure. Perhaps the most significant example of this, though, whether we're talking about Noah or Snow White, because also involves adult culture and not, not just children's books, uh, is the birth of Jesus uh, in popular Christian Christmas culture. Uh, consider just, for example, the images that come to mind uh, of the birth of Jesus, that scene created largely by, by song and art. Many of us probably can hardly help but seeing a stable in our minds, right? Uh, Jesus in a stable, and that's integral and universal in the depiction of the nativity. Uh, it's possible that Jesus was in a stable. Uh, it's very unlikely, almost certainly not. Um, the, we, we read from Luke 2 the what has now been maintained because it was traditional so long ago, the translation about there being no room in the inn. And so they went somewhere else. Uh, but the word in there, the Greek word behind that, is simply the same word Jesus uses, for example, uh, to describe the place where they had the Last Supper, the upper room. Uh, that's what the word means. It's an upper room or a guest room. Uh, it's simply the, the second floor in a, in a simple ancient uh, Jewish house, uh, where the people would eat, where the people would stay, where you might keep guests. In the evening, um, they would bring the animals in the first floor sometimes, and the people would stay upstairs. Um, you probably picture in your mind animals around at the birth of Jesus. It's part of our popular image. Again, that's possible. It's not mentioned in the scriptures. You probably picture a star, and a star is always in the depiction uh, but that comes later in the story of the wise men in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not, that, that's not part of the scene at Jesus' birth um, when he's born uh, somewhere else. Uh, maybe you picture three wise men. Again, often part of the popular depiction. The Bible, uh, again, doesn't tell us about three wise men, whether there were two of them or 20 of them, um, or maybe three kings in your mind. That's, that's certainly a contra-biblical uh, idea uh, of who was there. And maybe you just think these are nice, traditional, sentimental, harmless uh, things that serve to sort of endear to us the story of, of our Savior's birth. Um, I would suggest any time that we are laying aside details the Holy Spirit gives us or, or laying layers of sentimental tradition on top of it, uh, we're, we're on, on dangerous ground. We're maybe in need of a fresh look of how, how is this scene, in fact, described. Uh, one, one pastor uh, says this regarding the, the birth of Jesus. Uh, some of our images and songs and so on set up a sentimentalized veneer 
over what the Bible actually says and creates an aura of unreality, a legend, or of, of legend, which is not harmless. I just want to focus this morning a bit on what, what is often portrayed today as, as a, a beautiful scene and, and sort of everything being just perfect in its glowing uh, cuteness. Uh, whereas in the scriptures, Matthew and Luke uh, painstakingly, carefully record for us a scene uh, with opposite connotations and depictions of the absolute abasement and humiliation of the Son of God. Uh, so that uh, we would better and truly understand the gospel uh, beginning in the, in the coming of Christ. Again, just to, to illustrate that point, and my goal, I assure you, is not here to spoil Christmas, but to uh, receive and see and celebrate it in its, in its glory more fully and truly. Just think further of some of the ways the birth of our Lord is portrayed popularly. So in, in art, for example... In the scene, everyone is always happy. Everything is perfect. There's, there's nothing communicated to us visually of, of the, um, or, or audibly of the pain and exhaustion and, and gore of ordinary birth, right? That reminds of the, of the ordinary circumstance of a baby crying or uh, in hunger or crying from a diaper rash or something like that. Uh, it's, it's generally depicted with this angelic glow uh, a, a scene of beautiful cuteness, if you will, uh, when in fact, even though, of course, joy and celebration and worship are, are appropriate responses to the birth of Jesus, the opposite is intended in Luke's description of the birth. He means for us to see the misery, the vulgarity of the circumstance of Jesus' birth. How, how unthinkable and humbling and dirty the setting is for the Son of God, the King of the universe, to be born. Now, he doesn't give us a depiction of glowing cuteness. Again, I think the Noah story is, is you know, in, in our children's board books is, is a good parallel in some ways. It's not a, an account of cute, fluffy animals going for a boat ride. Right? That's not the story in the scriptures. The story is carefully described by Moses as, as the gruesome heart-wrenching, humanity-drowning, earth-destroying judgment that it was. It's a very difficult story. And if we come away with a story of cute, fluffy animals, we've, we've missed the biblical account. Some of our traditional carol, carols are not particularly helpful uh, either. Uh, the, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Well, again, the Bible doesn't address whether Jesus cried or not. Uh, certainly he did. Uh, certainly that's a, a wrong image of, 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 the Lord, of the Lord Jesus as a baby. It, it strips Jesus of some of his humanity. In fact, it kind of denies in part the incarnation. Jesus didn't cry. Was he not fully human? Another song somehow proclaims that it was a silent night. All is calm. All is bright. Again, the Bible doesn't say, for all we know, it could have been a stormy, dark night. Um, it's just another example of extra-biblical details that create in our mind the sense of sentimental legend over against what, what Luke and Matthew have carefully described for us. Radiant beams from his holy face and, and so on. We can give other examples. Not, not reflected in the word of God. In fact, even contradicting the significance and the way that Luke and Matthew 
carefully describe Jesus' birth. Um, there's, there's only one song I can think of uh, that points us in the direction of the shocking humility that's part of the biblical description here. That's from, we just sang this the other night in the neighborhood here, from what child is this? It asks this question. Why lies he in such mean estate? How did he end up here? What's wrong with this scene? And again, despite virtually all of our other popular depictions uh, not uh, leading us in that direction, that is the question, I think, that Luke and Matthew's description should bring to our minds uh, about the setting here. So I want to take a fresh look at how the Holy Spirit would have us picture and understand the circumstances of, of Jesus' birth. Um, some of the, the outline that you have in front of you is adapted from something that, that Pastor Professor Daniel Hyde wrote uh, years ago. Um, and I want to quote him just this once up front where he says, the, the glory of the Christian faith is not found in the heights of its majesty. It's not found in our being exalted so highly. It's not found in the great power we might receive, but the glory of the Christian faith is found first in its humility, in its lowliness. And that's certainly true of Jesus' birth. We, we might rather that the glory and the path of the Christian life and, and, and Christianity be cuteness and comfort and ease and sentimentality and exaltation in this life. But the Bible is clear, in order for you, for example, to become strong, you must become weak. Right? To be wise, you must become fools, as the world would evaluate it. To be exalted, you must be humbled. The glory of Christianity is not seen, for example, in trying to uh, sentimentalize and glorify the cross of Christ. Right? Or, the, or the rejection of Christ, or his humanity, or his birth. It doesn't lead us to the true glory of Christianity and of our Lord. But in first recognizing the incredible lowliness of it, the, the self-giving humility of it. Uh, Jesus' birth is the first part of the lesson for you as the people of God, that, that glorification for you comes first through the humiliation of Jesus and then through your humility. Uh, just one, one final note before we I'll look at the outline here. As, as confessional Presbyterians, we should have this understanding about Jesus' birth clear and that our catechism uh, addresses it clearly. Uh, the shorter catechism, question 27, asks, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Where, where do we see it? And the answer begins this way. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition. And then the larger catechism, I have this in your half sheet in your bulletin, uh, then devotes an entire question and answer to the humiliation of Jesus just in his birth. You know, future questions go on to uh, his suffering and death and so on. But question 47, how did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth in that, being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. That's what we want to think about this morning. Let's consider briefly four ways in which it's Jesus' humility that we see 
uh, in the circumstances of his birth. So first, uh, this is first seen, uh, number one in your outline, in his parents. His humility in his birth is seen in his parents. The Messiah King was not born uh, by the high priest uh, or some other high, important, well-off, well-connected, well-educated person. He was born to lowly, unimportant parents. Uh, to Joseph, uh, a very ordinary father, it seems. In, in Matthew 13, uh, when people are shocked at Jesus' teaching, how he could be teaching like he was, what did they ask? They said, is this not the carpenter's son? By which they meant, isn't he just a carpenter? Uh, verse 4 tells us that <clears throat> Joseph was from Nazareth, uh, not a significant city. In fact, uh, thought poorly of. We'll come back to that in a bit. Um, Joseph is now not well off, it seems. That's evidenced not only by the fact that he's, he's uh, only a carpenter, uh, but by his only having a feeding trough in which to put his baby when he's born. Uh, verse 7, there's no room for the Son of God. Uh, something to, to think about. All Joseph could provide was a dark, dirty animal space. If we kept reading, we'd read uh, that because he was their firstborn, when they bring him to Jerusalem, uh, it's, it's a lamb that's prescribed uh, to bring as an offering, a sacrifice for a firstborn, uh, unless you can't afford that. You can bring birds, and Mary and Joseph bring birds. Uh, Mary, uh, as his mother, also presumably not well off, uh, and, and a very ordinary woman, uh, but certainly at, at this time, in the time that we're reading about, not well thought of. Uh, we read in verse 5 and in, in Matthew's gospel that uh, Mary was engaged, but she was with child. Uh, engagement in that day was, uh, in that culture, in that time, was really a, a year-long, about a year-long thing, and it was about as, as binding as marriage is for us. Uh, so it wasn't sort of a preliminary uh, a commitment as, as we practice it, but it was more like marriage that just hasn't been consummated yet. Um, and so she's found to be with child, as it says in Matthew 1. We're told that Joseph, of course, assumed that she'd been unfaithful. And we're not told about what kind of conversations she and Mary had or how Mary may have tried to explain. Um, but he planned to divorce her, uh, though quietly. Um, and, of course, the, the angel came to Joseph then and, and changed his mind. Uh, but now, as, as they come to Bethlehem, Mary has been for months visibly pregnant and certainly would be viewed as an adulterer and, and would be scorned, especially by her community, where she's from, um, by people who would not understand yet. So Jesus' humility is seen in his parents. Secondly, number two, is seen in his infancy, in his infancy. Uh, that is, Jesus, the, the eternal God, the second person of the Godhead, was humiliated in becoming a man, becoming a human and in a sinful and fallen world. Just think about particularly the fact that that means Jesus underwent every stage of human development with its frailties and its limitations. He didn't even have the, the benefit, if you will, of, of you know, Adam being created as a, as a full uh, adult human, it, it seems. But Jesus, the Son of God, was an embryo, was a fetus, was an infant, and so on. The eternal creator God, completely and entirely sufficient in himself, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He has all wisdom. He has all power. He had an umbilical cord to keep him alive. Right? He had to nurse to stay alive. 
He had his diapers changed. He cried. He lived the weakness and the helplessness of infancy. And and all along, he had to grow. He had to build muscle. All-powerful God. He, He couldn't walk. He had to learn to walk. He couldn't talk. He had to learn to talk. There's also great significance in Luke's recording in verse 21 that Jesus was circumcised. Jesus, again, the sinless Son of God, underwent this painful, bloody symbol of of the need for cleansing from sin, of regeneration. Thirdly, thirdly, we see the humility of Jesus in his birth, uh, in his reception. In his reception. The... uh, Back to thinking about popular portrayals and images of Jesus' birth, the the announcement to and the visit of shepherds in in the sort of popular Christmas portrayal is is part of the cute sentimentality of the event, event, is it not? Right? The idea of these these nice men who take care of cute little lambs, they they come to worship Jesus. It's it's thought as as a sweet part of the story. It's actually part of the strangeness, the humbleness of it. Luke intends for his readers to be shocked in reading how the Son of God was born, including this bit about shepherds. Uh, it's, it's not to be read as an ordinary, sweet, sentimental story. But we're to think, how could this be? Shepherds? Right? This is twisted and wrong. And again, Western Christianity has by now sort of flipped this on its head. Uh, but we need to recognize first that shepherds were lowly members of society. They were sort of outsiders they were, they were dirty, uh, not, certainly not important. They were generally untrusted, ancient sources show. <clears throat> I read a while back about the, the birth of Louis XVI, Louis XVI of, of France, of course, and about all these, these royal and important attendants who were there at his birth who were immediately called. So there were Important people called as witnesses, and important high clergy there to baptize him. And uh, he was appointed a, a, a royal doctor and a royal nurse and, and a royal governess immediately. And riders were sent as soon as he was born to Paris to announce the, announce the news that Louis was born. And so they fired cannons off in Paris and rang bells throughout the entire day. In Paris, there was a fireworks show that night. And when Louis XVI was born, he was the third in line to the throne. He wasn't even the heir at that point. Uh, And this is what was done for him. Now, again, brushing away sentimental veneers of of Christmas, recognize the shocking fact that the birth of the Son of God in Bethlehem that night uh, went unnoticed and unheralded in that town. No one knew and no one cared. The announcement was only made to shepherds. That would be like Louis XVI being born, and his mom says, you know, call in a couple of diseased beggars. We'll tell them about it, and don't tell anybody else. Right? It wouldn't be a cute, sentimental story. It's bizarre. It's upside down. That leads to another aspect of the strangeness and the humility of Jesus' reception, is that he was only greeted and worshipped by shepherds. Right? The Savior of God's people, the long-awaited Messiah, is not here received and greeted and worshipped by crowds or by the high priests or by governors and kings, but by shepherds. Then fourthly and finally, Jesus' humility in his residence. 
his residence. In Matthew 2, the Magi come. You know that story. Uh, They've learned somehow uh, that a king has been born of the Jews. And so where do they go? Not to Bethlehem. right? They went to Jerusalem. Went to Jerusalem first. That makes sense. It's the capital city. It's the central city. It's the city of David. It's where the temple was, where the high priesthood was, where other powerful people were. Right? Louis XVI was born in the palace at Versailles. It's the only place he would have been born. Jesus was not born in the palace in Jerusalem. He's born in Bethlehem. It's the city of David. It has that going for it. But it's a very small city among thousands of little Judean cities. And Micah chapter 5 draws this out in, in predicting Jesus would be born there. You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And Jesus went on to live, of course, in Nazareth. And you remember what Philip told Nathaniel when, when he was told about Jesus of Nazareth. He said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Reflecting, apparently, a general attitude about Nazareth. Recent uh, archaeology suggests there are only about 30 to 40 tiny uh, ancient homes uh, in Nazareth at, Nazareth at that time. It was a very small town. And yet Jesus came to be known as Jesus of Nazareth. That's uh, how he identified uh, with a lowly place of no importance. So we see clearly that in his birth, Jesus is humiliated by his parents. His humanity, his infancy, his, his weakness and development. He, see his humility in his reception, his lack of reception, and in his residence. And it's in understanding even his birth in this way that we learn, we're reminded again, for example, for one thing, of the love of God. That we see it more fully than seeing a sentimental, glowing uh, account. Not that God would send us a cute little baby to live in our hearts, but that he would, in the face of a world rebelling against him, who had killed his prophets and turned away from him again and again, who would stand and take counsel against him, Psalm 2, he would come and suffer the humiliation of humanity, even humanity under the curse of sin. And he would signal his intent to die in the place of those who would humble themselves before him. You need to see in this account the king of all the world humbled and humiliated for your sake. Right, a savior who embraced humility for your sake, who became sin. So that you would not experience the humiliation of sin, the, the wrath of God for sin. And so that we together can, ultimately through his death in your place, through his resurrection, uh, anticipate glory after suffering and humility. Uh, Jesus teaches us, even in the circumstances of his birth, what kind of a Savior he is. What kind of a Savior you need. Uh, one who experiences so that he can redeem everything. Everything of this life. So he can save you in total. Uh, he teaches you, again, the love of God. He became what you are. He entered into the suffering and the brokenness of this world to redeem it from the very beginning. Uh, even to the point of identifying with and dying with sinners. And I want you to think also on the fact that Jesus, even in his birth, calls you and me as, as disciples to a life of humility, a life that embraces humility uh, in our lives. 
absolutely contrary to the pursuits and expectations of the world, just as his birth was. Uh, Philippians 2, which is printed in your bulletin there, makes this connection clearly and beautifully, where Paul writes, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And, and why? Where does, where does that come from? Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' humility calls you to recognize your hopelessness as a sinner before God, desperately needing forgiveness and mercy and salvation from this Savior. And then calls you to a life that's shaped by grateful humility. Jesus said in Luke 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said in Luke 18, uh, after one of his parables, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, Peter writes later in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So as you remember Jesus' birth today and tomorrow and every day, remember you don't serve the sentimental legend of of some of uh, the arts who makes you feel good or helps you to be nice or things like that. But in Jesus' own words, serving him is taking up your cross, dying to self, humbling yourself, Uh, giving yourself totally to him in humility uh, as he did for you, uh, beginning with his birth. Uh, Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you and praise you for this account of your sending uh, the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would help us to fully see and appreciate uh, the humility of Jesus, the Son of God. Help us, Lord, to understand in even in some part, how mind-boggling that is. Help us this morning to receive your word with faith, to lay it up in our hearts and practice in our lives, uh, walking with our Savior in humility. And we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.